This morning's passage comes from uh, the book of Colossians. We've been in the book of Colossians for a couple weeks now. Uh, and I'm enjoying uh, what Paul wrote to this new young church uh, in Colossae, the city of Colossae. We, of course, we only get to hear one side of the discussion because we don't know exactly what was going on, uh, but it has been rich nonetheless. Uh, I'm going to read this morning uh, from Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen one, ones holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. Let's pray together this prayer uh, of illumination. Uh, that's taken from Psalm 85, verse 8. Lord God, help us to turn our hearts to you and hear what you will speak. For you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. I don't know how many of you uh, have listened to Johnny Cash or have ever listened to Johnny Cash uh, at some point in your life. Uh, But Johnny Cash wrote a song uh, years and years and years ago Uh, that was called No Earthly Good. And uh, there was a lyric in that song that I thought about this week, and the lyric went like this. I think it was in the chorus. He said, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Now, he wasn't the, the first person to say that, but he certainly had experienced it at some point in his life, which preempted him to write the song, of course. 
But what he taps into is a picture of someone uh, who is so kind of focused on heavenly things or has their, so, has their mind so caught up in the clouds that they become either uh, irrelevant or useless to anything that happens here on this earth. Uh, those outside of the Christian faith have some, at some point characterized Christians this way. And I've, of course, am someone within the faith, and I've known uh, people that are like this as well. People that seem to be so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. Well, C.S. Lewis, uh, interestingly enough, said the exact opposite. He said, the people that have been most good or the people that have done the most good here on this earth were in fact the people that were the most heavenly-minded. You see, when Paul opens this passage to the, uh, telling the Colossians something really important, he tells them to set their mind on things above. He tells them to be heavenly-minded, to always be uh, God-conscious, or to always allow the eternal realities to soak into our hearts and to soak all the way down to our bones, who we are at our core. And then what he does is he begins to paint a picture. He begins to paint kind of two images of what this looks like here on earth. You see, what the scriptures always are very careful to do is, if you read the scriptures, you know they're full of incredible kind of deep theological truths. They're all over the place in the scriptures. And the first couple chapters of Colossians is just that. It gives us great kind of deep theological insight and theological understanding. Things about the character of God, things about the character of humanity and the reality of things as we see them. But the scriptures, scripture writers never want to keep those concepts in the abstract. They always want to show us what it means in our everyday lives. If these things are true, then this is the difference that they are going to make in our lives in the everyday. And that's what Paul's doing in this passage. He's making a comparison. He's painting a picture between someone who is very earthly-minded versus someone who is heavenly-minded. Verses 5 to 9, he gives us a picture of the earthly or the picture of those who are characterized by the things of this world. He launches into, in his description, he launches first into several kind of sexually related sins. It kind of makes us scratch our heads and wonder what exactly was going on in the church of Colossae that prompted Paul to launch into this first and foremost. We don't really know. What we do know is that we live in a very sexually charged culture now. But if you studied Paul's day, you'll know that that culture was just as kind of sexually charged as our own. It might have even been worse if you, if you compare the two. But what the Bible does is it never shies away from talking about the idea of sexuality, and it never is against the idea of sexuality. Instead, what it does is it affirms it, it recognizes that uh, it is a powerful gift, and it is attended with incredibly strong desires. So what it does is it gives us the context in which our, our sexuality can be best expressed or experienced. But on the flip side, it also warns us. 
It warns us about the carnage that it can cause when it is expressed outside of God's design. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. He's speaking about sexual morality, speaking about impurity, about disordered passions and evil desires. He speaks about a, a sexual covetousness that was going on in the Colossian church. And of course, as we think about this, we can recognize that, that all these things are really present in our culture today as well. But he doesn't just stay there. He moves on to other characteristics or other earthly values that he wants to talk about as well. And those are important for us to look at too. You see, I think in some ways Christians have gotten very good at condemning uh, the sexual sins that we see in our culture, but we're a little slower to talk about some of the more socially acceptable characteristics that Paul talks about here in this passage as well. He speaks about anger that leads to malice and to slander. Uh, malice is kind of this, this anger-fueled desire to either emotionally or physically injure someone or to put them in distress. He talks about slander, which is a means for that to be accomplished, about speaking negatively about someone in order to bring them some sort of relational harm. It's saying that it's saying things that uh, behind people's back that we would never really say to their faces. And Paul addresses these things head on. He says that all obscene talk, all of it, should be absent from the mouths of believers, and neither should there be any sort of lying whatsoever present in the life of a believer. He, press, he prefaces this kind of long laundry list of things uh, with an action. And the action, he says, is to put these things to death. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He says, get rid of it. He says, throw it out. Make it absent from your lives like old clothes that no longer fit you. Get rid of of all these things in your lives. But what Paul does is he's making a contrast. So he doesn't just want to talk about the negative. He then wants to paint a picture of what the earthly, or, or what not of what the earthly is, but what the heavenly looks like. And he talks about this in verses 11 to 17. He gives us a picture of the heavenly. He says a heavenly-minded person is a person who is filled with compassion and kindness, one who considers others and their position and their needs, one who is sympathetic, one who is full of, of mercy, one who thinks about themselves second or doesn't even think about themselves at all, which in some cases is very rare in a very kind of me, self-centered culture. Talks about someone who is dripping with humility and with meekness. And he's talking about someone who is patient. I thought about this week, whenever I see patience in the scriptures, I always have to slow myself down a little bit. Because as, whenever I look into my own heart and whenever I look into my own life, I realize that I have a constant struggle with patience in my life. It is one of those kind of inner wars that is always raging in my heart. 
And I was reminded of that this week. I was, uh, the other day I was walking uh, the dog with uh, my kids and uh, my two oldest boys, and we were talking about weaknesses, right? And how uh, all of us kind of have strengths and, and weaknesses in their life. And uh, my boys said, well, Daddy, what do you think uh, is, is, is your weakness? And I said, well, boys, I, I really struggle with patience. I struggle with being a very patient kid or a very patient person sometimes with my kids. And uh, I I said, have you ever observed in daddy uh, impatience or a lack of impatience? And I thought they'd have to sit and ponder for a little while, but they did. They launched right into lots of stories in which daddy was impatient and they started having a good time with it. They were starting to play off one another and, hey, you remember when dad did this? You remember when dad? And after 10 minutes, I said, boys, I get the picture. I get the picture. I am not a particularly patient person. But what Paul is saying is that patience characterizes the heavenly. So does this idea of of forgiveness, of overwhelming forgiveness, of forgiving others the way Christ has forgiven us, which is a huge, tall task for us to do. And all of these things, all of these kind of heavenly virtues are bound up in this idea of love and peace. Paul doesn't just want to help us see what it looks like in the context of the individual. He also wants to help us see what these heavenly virtues uh, look like in the context of community as well. In verse 11, Paul talks about all the people that are being gathered into this great movement of Christianity and how they're all coming from different backgrounds, from uh, Greek backgrounds and Jewish backgrounds. He talks about barbarians and Scythians. He talks about slaves and free people. All of them are being bound together miraculously in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're together in this church of Colossae with one another, experiencing fellowship with one another. When we read this, I think we really miss out on the extremes that Paul is talking about here. If you were to bring it into kind of modern terms, he's saying this is Jew and Palestinian. This is ISIS and Western culture. This is a pirate sitting next to a debutante. This is old and young being together. This is a a hippie in church sitting next to an investment banker. All these people gathered together all because of Jesus Christ and the powerful connection they have in him. It is a community that is founded on love for one another that overcomes all backgrounds and differences. Paul also gives this an action term as well. He says, put these things on, put them on. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. These characteristics are to define believers in Jesus Christ. They are to be the things that are to be spoken about us when we leave the room by other people. And I think Paul wants the Colossian church to wrestle with, and I think he wants us to wrestle with this question, which are we more characterized by? Which list more resembles our lives? Are we more characterized by the earthly or are we more characterized by the heavenly? Now, I have to be honest with you. Most sermons would end at this point. 
Most sermons would end right here. And maybe you're thinking, great, let's, let's be done. Let's move on. But most of us would be comfortable with saying, this is what we're supposed to do, and this is what we are not supposed to do. We've gotten our moral pep talk, and we've gotten our understanding that we are to do this, and we are not to do that. But to leave this passage with just thinking that is to actually miss the entire point of Paul's message in the book of Colossians. To end it there is to miss the very gospel itself. Because the point of this discussion is not to just conjure up better morals or a better morality to ourselves. The point of it is to root ourselves more and more in Jesus Christ. You see, you and I can interact with a passage like this and we can leave here and we can try harder and most likely we will fail. Think about all the the passages, all the commands that Paul includes in here that have to do with our speech, that have to do with our tongues. And if you've ever tried to control your tongue, you know how challenging that is. You think of James's words that, that, the, that the heart is deceitful, but the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Our tongues alone violate daily everything that Paul talks about in this passage. And yet everything that he says here is the very thing that is expected of us as believers in Jesus Christ. So we have to look at these pictures. We have to look at what Paul's saying. And then we have to look honestly at ourselves. We have to recognize that most days we are far more characterized by the earthly than we are by the heavenly. We can try and we can try and we can try on our own strength and merit to make all these things true. But in the end, it is never good enough because we can't do it on our own. We can't in our performance make these things true of our lives. So what the gospel does is it drives us to look at Jesus, the only one who could. You see, the heavenly is made real in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says this, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What is Paul getting at? He's saying Jesus was the one, the only one, who perfectly avoided all of these earthly characteristics. He was the perfect picture of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. And yet, despite all that, he hung on the cross to bear the punishment that you and I deserved. He suffered horribly in the face of severe suffering, all the while saying, Father, forgive them. You see, he embodied what love truly is. So when we come to a passage like this, the answer never is about our performance. It's always about looking to Jesus Christ and his performance on our behalf. You see, in these verses, Paul is talking about our union with Jesus Christ. He says that at that moment where we enter into a relationship with him, when by faith we experience new life, our lives become hidden inside of him. 
at that moment of, that, of our salvation, at that moment when we first despair of our own goodness and trust in him, at that moment we are united to Christ with a bond that can never be broken. If you were with us last week, we're like a tree that is rooted in the ultimate source of life. And the more we root our lives in Christ, the more we look to him in faith, the more these heavenly characteristics will be true of our lives. This week, I thought about one of my old bosses at a church uh, I used to work at, and uh, uh, he was uh, just a great man who uh, I admired greatly. I learned just so much uh, about ministry from him and of just uh, working for him and being a part of his staff. Uh, But I remembered always something that I took note about him, and in particular, his marriage. Uh, He'd been married for uh, a really long time. And, uh, and all the richness of that marriage was, was true of them. But what I can remember is because they'd been married for so long, they actually kind of acted very similar. Some of their uh, reactions to things would be the same. Uh, some of their mannerisms would be the same. Uh, the ways they would interact with people would be the same. And I swear, remember, I remember saying to my wife, I think they actually even look like each other. Even though one's a guy and one's a girl, they actually start, they even look like each other. And what it reminded me of the fact is that when we are in relationship with people, when we are in relationship with others, there's a, there's a certain rub-off that comes from those relationships. Uh, if you hang out with someone long enough, uh, hopefully their uh, good attributes begin to rub off on you and vice versa. And that's just part of the nature of what relationships are really all about. And I actually think that's what Paul is getting at in this passage. I think he's getting at the fact that the more time we spend united to Christ, the more time we spend rooting ourselves in the gospel and rooting ourselves more in our relationship with Christ, the more these things will become true of our lives. You see, there's this great verse uh, in the book of Psalms that says this. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I got to be honest, the first time I read that verse, I said, what a great deal. If I just delight myself in God, then anything that I want, he's going to end up giving me. But when I thought that, I really was missing the point of what the psalmist was actually trying to say. Because what he was saying was, the more we delight ourselves in God, the more we revel in our relationship with him, the more he will begin to rub off in our lives. Our desires will become his desires. His characteristics will ultimately become our characteristics. See, what Paul is getting at is that the wellspring for all of these virtues that he lists, the wellspring for these virtues is not a performance or is not about human effort. The wellspring for these virtues is our position in Jesus Christ. It is rooting ourselves in his gospel and in our relationship with him. 
You see, if we make it about us, if we make it about our performance, if we make it just about pure morality, we will end up resenting God in the long run. If we're motivated by guilt or by duty or by obligation, we will never truly love God for who he is. Instead, we will only ever love him for what we can get out of him. You see, the motivation for all this can never be duty. It can never be guilt. It can never be obligation. The heavenly is motivated by gratitude. If you look at the passage, if you look at the last three verses of the passage, all three of those verses, verse 15, 16, and 17, all mention living lives centered around gratitude and thankfulness. It's the only virtue out of all of them that is mentioned more than once, and it's actually mentioned three times. I can remember as I thought about that this week, I can remember when I was young, getting ready to graduate uh, from college, uh, I can remember uh, trying to make a deal with the universe, okay? I remember saying, if I can just get these things, then I will live a life of contentment and fulfillment and gratitude. Now, you're thinking as a college graduate, I must have had some wonderful lofty goals, right? I want to go out and change the world. I want to have a great job. I want to make an impact on culture and, you know, change everything. Well, those were not my goals. I set my goals much lower than the average person coming out of graduation. I distinctly remember this. I remember thinking, if I could just get to a point in my life where I can drive a Jeep and have a dog, then everything will be right in the universe. Now, last year, I, I'm, I, I'm in my mid to late 30s, and last year I bought my, ev- my first ever Jeep. And about two months ago, we got our first dog. So according to my college standards, I have arrived in life, right? And you would think that now that I have my Jeep and now that I have my dog, then all of a sudden contentment and gratitude and fulfillment are going to be true in my life because I've arrived. Well, I did not find that to be the case. Gratitude and contentment and fulfillment are just as elusive today as they were when I graduated from college. And the reason is because we cannot, as people, root our gratitude in our circumstances. The only way to really be thankful is ultimately to root our lives in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Because when we root our lives in Christ and in the gospel, we remind ourselves every day that we stood before God as guilty sinners. We stand before God far more characterized by the earthly than we are by the heavenly. And because of that, the only thing that we truly deserve for our lives is judgment. And yet, God stood in the gaps. Christ came. He took the punishment for us. He stood in the gap. He took the wrath of God. And by faith, my life can be hidden in him. I no longer am an object of wrath awaiting judgment, but now I am an object of grace, of love, and adoption. 
And every blessing that comes my way, whether it's a Jeep or a dog or whatever blessing you experience in your life of a wonderful marriage or kids or a great job, whatever that blessing is, all of it ultimately is a, is a gift of God's grace in our lives. And for that, we can live lives of gratitude. Remember a couple years ago, I probably have told this story before, a couple years ago uh, we had uh, a neighbor that we'd met and uh, she expressed a, a, an interest in what I do uh, and uh, didn't react really weird when I told her I was a pastor, which is rare. Uh, and uh, she was curious. So we said, why don't you come over to the house and we'll have dinner and we'll tell you a little bit about our faith and, and what it means to be a pastor and all that. And uh, she came over and we had small talk over dinner and uh, over dessert, we kind of got into the meat of it. And over the dessert, we had an opportunity uh, to share the gospel with her. And we talked about how the basis of our faith is, is purely about God's grace and we don't have to be driven by guilt anymore. And she looked at us in, in all honesty and sincerity and said, well, that's just too good to believe. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? She said, I, I just can't believe that that, that would be uh, as good of a news as that really is. And she looked at us puzzled and she said, well, if it isn't about guilt, then how are you motivated to live a good life? And I said, well, in the gospel, our guilt is translated to gratitude. That the motivation for us to live a good life doesn't have to be guilt anymore. Instead, it becomes gratitude for what Christ has done and, and, and for how he has impacted our lives. And she just shook her head and said, I can't believe it. I can't believe that that is true. And we're still praying for her even this day. You see, friends, in some ways, guilt is a very good motivator. But it is a joyless motivator. We can feel guilty about passages like this one. And we can try to run off and be very moral in our own strength. But to do that is to miss the gospel itself. To do that is to say that Christ's sacrifice on our behalf was not enough. We need to add to it. But ultimately, to do that is to miss out on the joy that comes in the gospel. Instead, friends, revel in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Root your lives in him. Root your life in the gospel. Try less and believe the gospel more. Delight yourself in the Lord because your life is hidden in him. And when you do, you'll find that your heart is overrun with gratitude. And in the process, the character of God will begin to rub off on you. Let's pray.